It's the 29th of January, 2021. This is a Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. How are you doing? Are you happy? Are you worried? Don't worry. Be happy. You know, rheumatologists are the happiest. You know what I'm not worried about? I'm not worried about the vaccine. I'm not worried about osteitis. I'm not even worried about burnout. At the end of this podcast, you probably won't be worried either. Let's start with a report on COVID. You know that there's uh, a lot of drugs under evaluation for COVID. And uh, there's this sort of famous study I talked about back in, I think, April or May, called the Cole Corona Study. Cole for a colchicine. And uh, Corona, I have no idea why the Corona's in there. The Cor- uh, Joe Kramer Corona had nothing to do with this study. Uh, Lord knows he's involved in every other study. <laughs> Congratulations, Joel. But no, this is the Cole Corona study from the Montreal Heart Institute. Uh, Mike Pillinger and NYU and others in New York were involved in this as a multi-center study. Over 4,000 patients enrolled looking at the value of colchicine in patients who ha- uh, have been newly diagnosed with COVID-19 infection. So this was a nationwide multi-center study. Um, looking at the efficacy of colchicine. It was given to patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 and had at least one risk factor for, um, I get poor outcomes, more or less. Um, and they looked at the whether or not this intervention in early disease, meaning these patients were not hospitalized, might affect the outcomes. So uh, I really interesting study. The interesting thing here, however, is it's a preprint. It's not been in publication yet. This is a press release from the Montreal Heart Institute, basically stating that, you know, it looked like it was protective. So it re- if you were on colchicine compared to not being on colchicine, patients were on background therapies, there was a 25% reduction in the need for hospitalization. There was a 50% reduction in the need for mechanical ventilation and death also reduced 44%. So, you know, very on early in COVID, we talked with Lenny Calabrese and Cassie Calabrese, and they were speculating at that time, one of the key issues might be when we use these drugs. And I still think that that's not being talked about enough. I think that that Lenny was right. I think that there are certain drugs that work well in people before they're a train wreck going into the hospital, before they're in the ICU. And I think there are drugs that need to be used when you're in the ICU and not doing very well. Colchicine looks like a drug that might be used early with good outcomes. Speaking of the the pandemic, you know, vaccines are all the rage right now. Look at the rant that I did on QD clinics this week. The QD clinic was called Dead Gummit. Where is Waldo's COVID-19 vaccine? And it gives you a lot of numbers about it and what you should be doing about this hysteria about getting the vaccine. Don't worry. Be happy. It's going to happen. But the vaccine numbers are kind of interesting. The Fed says that they've delivered 44 million vaccine doses um, to the states. Um, actually, and, and worldwide, I think 73 million doses have been shipped so far, but 44 million in the United States, um, but only 24 million have been given. Now, does that mean um, they got all got their first dose and they're waiting on their second dose? Uh, it's estimated about 6% of the population has received uh, at least one dose. That's about 19.9 million. Uh, 1% has received both doses. I'm one of them. I'm a one percenter. Woo! Uh, 3.5 million Americans. Um, it's stated here that 2.7 out of the 3 million 
nursing home, domiciled, long-term care facility individuals have been vaccinated. That's pretty darn good. Um, that was in the first phase of vaccination was to get the nursing home patients vaccinated. 2.7 out of 3 million. But there's 21 million healthcare workers. Less than half have received their vaccination. So there's still a long ways to go. Look at my rant. It'll tell you basically calm down. Everyone's going to get the vaccine at some point. Don't buy into the hysteria, hysteria on television. Interesting study from um, on the topic of anca associated vasculitis and thromboembolism i think i did something like this a few weeks back it bears repeating because i'm not really familiar with this we all know about the risk of venous thromboembolism dvts pe's etc mi cvas even um but and we do know it's associated with systemic inflammatory disorders we've shown that repeatedly not surprising that you would see that also in lupus, that's been reported, and also in patients with vasculitis. So in this particular study of ANCA-associated vasculitis, 335 patients, um, almost 20% had experienced a VTE event in their follow-up. The overall incidence rate is 2.4 events per 100 patient years. That's kind of high. That's actually higher than what we see in RA, maybe two or three times higher. But interestingly, with ANCA-associated vasculitis, the rates were really high in the first three months after diagnosis. So in that cohort, it was 20 events per 100 patient years, really high. And it went down successively in six-month or yearly in increments. Turns out the factors that were most predictive of who would get a VTE event, age, that's been described before, but BVAS, the Birmingham Vasculitis Activity Score, not surprising, would predict risk for VTE. Um, I found this very interesting report about endometriosis and rheumatoid arthritis. Who knew there was association? Uh, they basically looked at a cohort of almost 15,000 endometriosis patients, uh, and they looked at the risk of developing RA versus a control population. And they showed that RA patients uh, who had, or sorry, endometriosis patients had a higher risk of getting RA. That risk was 1.75, 75% increased risk. Um, not surprising, the other factors that would portend a risk of RA, age, um, and other autoimmune diseases, not surprising there. But endometriosis, really, I can't think of many of my patients with RA who have endometriosis, but this is akin to the story with periodontal disease. We all accept that, um, that periodontal disease uh, is a forerunner to getting RA, and that the pathology of periodontitis, you know, the pockets, you know, between the gingiva and, and the, the dentin uh, are very, very similar to the joints. The same cytokine profile, the same pro-inflammatory mediators, a lot of citrullinated proteins in there. Um, and we accept that association. But I can't think of many of my patients who have poor dentition and gingivitis and periodontitis, and that's why they have RA. Maybe it's really the same, and they say it's the same with the biology of endometriosis. The same, again, inflammatory mediators, cytokine profiles, etc. Might be something worth considering or thinking more about um, in taking a history with your RA patients. So who's going to get RA amongst early arthritis patients? The T-REACH study. Uh, a European study of 120 early arthritis patients showed that the factors for persistence of synovitis, hence going from early arthritis to having classifiable rheumatoid arthritis, are things that you would might 
sort of suggest net seropositivity, polyarthritis, um, disease activity, acute phase reactants. It turns out the more of those risk factors you have, the greater the risk of developing chronic disease. Or inversely, you could say for those with zero, one, or two or more factors, the risk of remission was 61%. If you had a zero of those factors, 32% and 30% for one and then two. Again, it is the risk factors that might tip you from early inflammatory arthritis into a more chronic sustained uh, inflammatory arthropathy like RA. Um, a nice study looked at the risk of comorbidities in psoriatic disease, especially psoriatic arthritis. This is 39 studies, 152,000 patients in this meta-analysis basically showed that the most common comorbidities were hypertension, 34%, metabolic syndrome, 30%, obesity, 27%, hyperlipidemia, 24%, cardiovascular disease disorders, 19%. Basically, patients with comorbid disease had more severe psoriatic arthritis. They had worse quality of life outcomes, including the, what, the quality of life outcome they used, I think, in, in psoriatic arthritis, the DL, DLQI. Uh, and they actually had more discontinuations. Again, we talk a lot about comorbidities, yet we do nothing about it. Comorbidities is your weather. Everyone talks about it and nobody does nothing about it. I think it is your responsibility, whether we're talking RA or PSA, if you identify a comorbidity, you should be managing it, writing the first prescription, sending it to the right person, but you got to take the bull by the horns here because comorbidities kill. As I said, they're associated with more severe disease. Uh, let's see where we are on list here. Talking about psoriatic arthritis. I didn't know there was an association between SAFO, the um, the uh, synovitis, acne, pustulosis, hyperostosis, osteitis syndrome, um, and palmo plantar pustulosis. Turns out that the pustulosis part of palmo plantar pustulosis is one of the criteria for SAFO. So there are patients with such um, uh, combination. Uh, and interestingly, there's a nice uncontrolled case series, 13 cases of those patients who are difficult to treat, responding really well to tofacitinib. Yet another indication for a JAK inhibitor in chronic skin disease. Came across a really rare association to a really uncommon disease, systemic sclerosis, pretty uncommon. Osteitis in systemic sclerosis. How many of those you've seen? Can't think I've seen any of them. This particular French study identified 48 patients, more than half of whom had osteitis. They were sort of specifically looking for osteitis. And the osteitis was seen beneath these digital tip ulcers. It was more likely there. Those people had radiographically or, or uh, uh, imaging evidence of osteitis. They were 75% had local pain, 75% had uh, erythema, 73% had warmth. Um, they usually have high acute phase reactants, and again, they have imaging evidence of osteitis and damage. Interestingly, one of the com most common treatments in these people with osteitis with systemic sclerosis and digital tip ulcers is chronic antibiotic therapy. Didn't know that. Think about that. So um, Kidney International had a nice report this week about uh, biopsy findings in lupus patients with low levels of proteinuria. So we see these patients. Um, I think you worry about patients with progressive proteinuria and other markers that usually are associated with class 3 and 4 glomerulonephritis, you know, high-grade proteinuria with class 5 nephritis. 
They looked at a cohort, 87 patients who had proteinuria of less than 1,000 milligrams in a 24-hour collection. Um, when they, and they, these patients also had biopsies. Uh, and the, the, they basically found that um, about 30% had class 2 glomerulonephritis. Basically, all lupus patients have class 2 glomerulonephritis. That's not a big deal here. But about 40% had class 3 or 4 glomerulonephritis, even though they had low-grade proteinuria. And about... 25%, actually a little less, maybe 20% had evidence of class 5 glomerulonephritis. So again, when they tried to look at predictive factors for glomerulonephritis in this cohort, things that you would think would be predictive were not predictive at all in multivariate analysis, suggesting that identifying patients with glomerulonephritis based on standard clinical parameters like proteinuria, like low complements, high double-stranded DNA, disease activity measures, not very predictive. We need better biomarkers. We talked about um, uh, biomarkers at the ACR, and there are, there's a lot of talk right now about better biomarkers that could be used, especially for renal outcomes. Look for that in the future. Speaking of renal outcomes, last week we hinted that on the 22nd, uh, Vocalosporin was up for an approval by the FDA, and sure enough, late in the day after we released this podcast, they were approved by the FDA for use in active lupus nephritis patients who are taking background immunosuppressors like mycophenolate, azathioprine, etc. Um, uh, we wrote plenty about it, gave you all the guidelines for use. The pill is a, it's an oral calcium neuron inhibitor. It's a 7.9 milligram uh, tablet. You take three of those a day and you lower the dose in people who have renal insufficiency. This is like other calcium neuron inhibitors. You have to watch their blood pressure. You have to watch their kidney function. Um, they can get GI symptoms from this. Again, it's a new drug. I want a new drug, you Lewis said. You now got one for lupus. Um, and let's end with physicians rank second in physician burnout. Medscape released its annual physician burnout report. It had a subtitle of like a thousand small cuts. Very painful, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, rheumatology. We're the happiest of physicians. Uh, but wait, this says we're second in the list in physician burnout. Marty Bergman wrote about physician burnout, and we published that in Room Now a few months back. This sort of is a, a, an accompanying piece to that. Uh, we were number two. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we were number two behind critical care that had a 51% rate of physician burnout using a standardized tool for that. Uh, we were at 50%. We were number two on the list. Not very good. You know, the kind of things that, you know, burnout, what? You know, I, I, think, could this be, I think this could be because there's a lot of older, white-haired rheumatologists who are at the end of their rheumatologic career. But, and, and while this sampling of 12,000 physicians in 29 specialties only included 1% rheumatologists, so can you make that judgment on 120 rheumatologists that you're surveying? Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe this is at odds with what we are currently saying about rheumatologists. But other aspects of their survey said rheumatologists were fourth lowest in marriage happiness. Rheumatologists um, had a higher degree of anxiety in, about their futures. In fact, they were the highest, 14% of all the subspecialists. So, so there is a negativity here. The, again, the burnout rates were tied to what? Too many bureaucratic tasks, too many work hours, lack of respect. <laughs> I get no respect. You know what? I get plenty of respect, and that's because I 
kind of hope for it, demand it, act like I'm going to get it. You know, I, I think you either worry about your career or you don't. My dad used to say there are two kinds of people in this world, those who get ulcers, those who give ulcers. I'm not getting any ulcers, so you can figure out who I might be. Um, again, a positive attitude is maybe the best way of dealing with physician burnout. These other factors, including pay um, and bureaucratic tasks in the EMR, these are things that we always need to worry about. But again, I still believe rheumatologists are amongst the happiest of all medical subspecialists. Room Now Live, March 2021. We'll see you there. Next week, hey, give me a call. It's, it's called Talk Back or Back Talk. Um, leave a recording. We'll discuss your case, your question. All right? Give it a try.